Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. And I think for today, we'll have a pretty short episode. Sona's on the line with me. Hi. And we'll be talking about the most recent episode of Only Murders in the Building, episode three, called The Last Days of Bunny Folger. Is that correct? Let me take yep. a look. The Last Day. Okay. The Last Day of Bunny Folger. Yeah, that's, yeah, that makes sense. I think sense. I said days, but yeah, mm-hmm. that, would, that day would make sense. But before we get into that, uh, this is a very eventful week for the podcast in the fact that, A, I will be wrapping up the final episode of The Boys this week, and we've been getting some momentum over on those episodes. So this is the finale and also starting to cover yet another new show, which is Blackbird over on Apple TV+. Plus. A very interesting looking show, and the early reviews are coming in, and they're very strong. And this is a Dennis Lehane show running for the very first time, the famous author, is now running this uh, serial killer thriller. And I think this particular story would be right up your alley, Sona. So I do believe you'll probably try to watch it. And of course, Sona will be joining me and my sister when she can, or in these episodes as we discuss Better Call Saul, which is also beginning this week (laughs) on Monday, next Monday, Mm -hmm. that uh, we will probably be, if possible, talking about Blackbird there. And uh, hopefully you'll be watching along and maybe we'll all get together for the finale and have a a big episode, but of course, Sona, anytime you want to join those conversations, I'll make sure to invite you if you want to jump in and have. Oh, thank you. So three episodes this week, but that won't be normal. <laughs> we'll go back down to two <laughs> after that. We'll be talking about Blackbird and talking about Better Call Saul, of course. Oh, and if you want to catch up on Better Call Saul, of course, number one, our seasons one through five are all available on Netflix. Also, if you don't live in the United States, the first half of season six is available also on Netflix, but in the US, it's available only on AMC. So set your DVRs. They're rerunning all of Breaking Bad yet again. How often do they do that? (laughs) Rerunning all of Breaking Bad this week. So if you don't have Netflix, by the way, but you do have cable, set your DVRs and record all of Breaking Bad if you've never watched it or you want to rewatch it. Oh, and the last thing you could possibly try to do is right now, by the way, Amazon Prime expiring on the 12th or the 13th, I believe, but right around the time of the premiere of Better Call Saul, you can currently add AMC Plus, which includes Shudder and IFC and a bunch of other things for 99 cents a month for two months. So That's how they get uh, you. And then you cancel <laughs> and then cancel afterwards. But if you do do that for two months, not only can you catch up on, if you, you are a horror fan, for example, Shudder pretty much acquires all the prestigious um, smaller horror movies now. So if you want to catch up on some of those, you can catch up on that. And of course, uh, the two months is a perfect window for the Soul Show. So, <laughs> And most importantly of all, finally, once you've binged and caught up, subscribe to our show and listen to us talk about it. Even if you don't watch the show, just come back and listen to us talk about a show you're not watching. Most important, most important of all. After my conversation with Sona, I also have a conversation about a show called The Bear. Sona, did I mention this to you last week? Already? Yes, we talked about it last week. We did, and I do recommend it. And my conversation with my sister, which is actually over a week old now and finally getting published, uh, is in there as well. And we don't spoil the show. There's only really one thing to spoil in the show, and we will specifically say when you can tune out if you haven't watched it. But um, we do discuss it in detail. I won't even hint at what it is, but uh, that's coming up at the end here. And of course, if, you know, obviously when we warn you about the spoiler, I would say the whole thing's available to binge. Definitely binge the entire thing before you hear that last part of the conversation, but that will be here as well. And with all of that finally out of the way, Sona, I know you had a great response to the first two episodes. I think in general, people were very, very happy about those first two episodes of the show. What'd you think about this third episode? So I actually was kind of pessimistic going into it because I did not think I was all that interested in the Benny character, Mm -hmm. but I actually was surprised by how much I liked the episode and how much I felt they really humanized her character and, you know, filled out what had been a very one-dimensional person up until now, you know, lots of little New York-y things. And I always love that Um, as she goes about her day. The New York Post headline, which is always good for a pun. (laughs) And I can't remember what it was, but it was something about the Knicks. The long running uh, misery of anyone who lives in New York City and is a Knicks fan because it just (laughs) never seems to be our year. The very strange dated Lynn Sanity joke also along with the Knicks um, commentary was uh, interesting. But as someone who did get carried along by Lynn Sanity and has the T-shirt to prove it, (laughs) I appreciated it. Yeah, so I felt like there was actually much more to like here than I expected there to be. 
I know last week I said that I expected the new board president to have a bigger role because it wouldn't have introduced her like this otherwise, but I didn't expect it to be this big. <laughs> She's a suspect now. Yeah. Prime suspect, prime suspect possibly. <laughs> so that was interesting to see the way that that developed. Yeah. Like I just all around, I, I thought she was adorable in her tie dye hoodie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I thought there was a lot going on here. I thought it was also interesting that she uses that hidden elevator as just like her elevator. Yes. To get up, to, up, up and down yeah. stairs. <laughs> um, <laughs> What did you think? I liked it as well. And I, I, for the same reasons you said, I do find it interesting that she keeps running into the main cast rather than kind of having her out in a bubble. She does keep continuously running into the main cast in yeah, that final day. Yeah, and they're like day. having some kind of crazy all-day celebration, yes. right? Like we just <laughs> right. keep encountering them celebrating in different settings. Right. No matter where she goes, there's one of them is there or, or all yeah. of them in one case. Yeah, they're celebrating. I think it's the one week, <laughs> the one week anniversary yeah, of them having random, saved but... the building. Yeah. In service of the plot, we can go with it. It's interesting how they fill that in too, that little retcon there, that not only did they fill that in, but we see the final moments of last season at, you know, towards the end of the episode where they're on the roof and Selena Gomez says, I just feel like there's still something missing here in the story. And then of course, that's the moment she walks into the door and that's where we end mm-hmm. the episode. But of course, that's where the show ended. But I like them filling that in that the whole day was kind of uh, like you mentioned, there was the media was there and their fans yes. were there and it was a whole big deal. Oh, and to your point, uh, broadly, I think that once again, this is the one theme that I think carries over from the first season that is maybe got a little forgotten in some of the zaniness last year, but I really do think that they come back to it here. And I'm curious to get your opinion on it specifically because you live in the city. But once again, it's this idea of the anonymity of being in the city, but especially when you're older. And I guess, you know, a lot of these people who are creatives on this show are older people who live in the city, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a certain loneliness to their life. And I think that is interesting. I guess there's a certain loneliness loneliness to everybody who reach, reaches a certain age and is disconnected from their family in general. But I think something about the city being so full of people, but still being alienating in his own way is something that they're touching on here. I think that's the sympathy we have for Bunny is in the only thing she cares about and maybe too much about is her role here at the building. And she's losing that right at, at this moment. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting also in that, as you know, my mom lives in the city and she's older, uh, <laughs> given she obviously has family in the city. We live six floors below her. But, um <laughs> Uh, you know, I think there is so much to be said for living in the city when you're older. Yeah. Practically speaking, it's just so easy to get around. It's yeah. so easy to get anything you could possibly need. It can even be delivered to you. And I think that the kind of the other side of the coin is the comfort of like, oh, this is the guy that I buy my fruit from. This yeah. is the guy at the diner that I where I get my coffee every day. There's like a whole other perspective on that of like these engagements with society that these yep. older people would ha- would not have if they lived uh, out in a in a non-urban area. You would just right. stay in your house alone all day, right? right? Like it actually does help you forge those connections, which on some level are superficial, but on some level not, right? right. Like my neighborhood is like a kind of its own little enclave and. I have to tell you, like if, if I'm walking around with my kid and I hear someone scream my kid's name from like across the way, the bagel guy is screaming my kid's name to say hello. Like that warms my heart. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's I totally understand the point you're making. And I I don't disagree. That's how it was portrayed. But I wonder if it's like a glass half full, half empty situation where it, it really does enrich your life. I think a lot of those yeah. interactions. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I actually agree with that. And and I don't necessarily didn't want to come off as sounding that being in the city is worse, that you're you're somehow more disconnected, because I think you're absolutely correct. There are so many instances where, you know, you hear anecdotally about someone who they found out they were uh, sick at home or something because he went to his chess match every single uh, mm-hmm, afternoon in Washington mm-hmm. Square Park. And when he didn't show up, someone went and checked on him, right? So it's right. the fact, like you said, if, of having this community, because everything is so readily available, you can easily get your own groceries, even if you can't carry, uh, you don't have a car, and you can't carry a huge load from Costco, but it's okay because you can get your grocery down at the bodega, uh, the fruits and vegetables you need for a day, and you put it in a bag and you carry it up to your apartment. Mm-hmm. So there's still all those conveniences. I, I agree with all of that. 
but I think thematically it's interesting in the fact that uh, oftentimes you see people who are older, who are in the suburbs, who have like no human contact and they obviously become alienated. Right. It's just interesting to see a perspective of being surrounded by people, but maybe still being lonely and alienated, right? Even yeah. And in- that is definitely something that people say about the city too. Yes, that yes. At the same time, you're surrounded by people and commotion and stimulating things. It can be a very lonely place to be. Right. I personally have not found that, but I personally really like being alone. So. <laughs> <laughs> as why. And I thought that was all re- really well done. And, you know, to do what I kind of had hoped when I introduced this episode last week, you know, that it would be some kind of reclamation for her character in that, you know, she's just kind of the butt of a joke, not even the butt of a joke. She's just kind of a stereotype of just being that overly nosy, mm-hmm. uh, overly invested, uh, you know, co-op board member. And probably if you've ever lived in the co-op, you've probably known people like that. And uh, but then you see how this is what gives her fulfillment and how she's been doing this for so long. She takes it maybe way too seriously, but it's the only thing she has really. Right. Now in practical terms for the case itself, what did you think? Obviously the whole, I know who did it thing turned out to be a total red herring, which we kind of expected last week. Yes. That was a cute explanation for it. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like a film noir that she's watching Mm -hmm. that she watches frequently, apparently. Uh, mm-hmm. speaking of red herrings, I'm starting to think that the painting may be a red herring in the fact that we're going to spend a lot of time investigating it. And here again, they introduce this idea that someone was harassing her. They wanted to get their hands on that painting. And now who shows up at the door? Is it the person who's been harassing her about the painting? See, I'm about to reverse myself. I was about to say, I think it's all going to be a red herring. Hmm. Maybe she wasn't pushed though. <laughs> I'm working this out in real time. So <laughs> <laughs> what else is new with us? <laughs> exactly. But you know what? While I work by they work this out in my head, what, what do you think about that? Like what clues do you see here that might be? Well, so we have two theories that are presented here, right? The first is the co-op board president thing. Yep. yep. First of all, seems way too obvious. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, a second, this woman's about to give birth any second and she's going to decide to murder someone just seems like contrary to the nesting instinct, instinct right? So like- Unless it's a fake I pregnancy. Mean, Is it a fake pregnancy? Why won't she give birth? <laughs> <laughs> I had not considered that. Um, I mean, to go into the reflexology of it all. Yes, and, I mean, she did seem really a little vested in all that. Bit. Yeah. Exactly. Very much so. Um, I agree. I agree. But I guess we can't rule it out until we see the baby. But um, <laughs> exactly. I need to see that baby first. It just seems like, I mean, maybe her husband could have done it on her behalf, I guess. I yeah. just don't think such a heavily pregnant woman would be murdering people, especially in such a physical way. It just also doesn't seem like a, a legitimate uh, reason to kill somebody. But yeah, I mean, who really wants to be co op board president that badly? I don't know. But maybe somebody out there, like, you know, someone had described to me that when you get to the suburbs of New York and you have a kid in school, all the PTA members are people who used to be VPs at New York City banks and it becomes a very (laughs) cutthroat environment. So maybe it's a situation like that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, it just doesn't, uh, it just seems too obvious yet weird for that to be. The theory, right? So then the other theory has to center around this painting, unless Mm -hmm. there's something that has not been introduced at all, I guess. I mean, what else could there be? We're three episodes in. How many episodes are there? This is 10. This is a 10 episode season. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the early clues are going to be unraveled over there in the course of the investigation. I, I, once again, I, I really wouldn't be surprised to find out that there is something to do with the painting, but that's not the killer. Like maybe there was somebody who attacked her, who who switched the paintings and or, or broke into her house, wanted the painting, found out it was a fake, but wasn't the killer. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot more to this, just because once again, if this was five or six episodes, then, you know, we're halfway through, but 10 episodes is, you know, you got to have some kind of twist in the middle where the Mm -hmm. investigation goes in a completely different direction, right? You usually don't wrap it up that neatly. Oh, I guess they kind of put out there, right. That it could be the doorman that she threatened to have fired. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that seems unlikely too, but especially because we've seen that guy, uh, you know, not that he's, we're totally vested in him, but (laughs) you know, it's like, you know, he's a, he's a known commodity to some extent. Uh, or my original theory was this is all about the painting, obviously that the painting was a fake that someone had swapped it in the past. Uh, not currently someone tried to steal the painting from her, 
noticed that it was fake and then basically sicked the podcasters on this investigation by framing them for the murder, right? Therefore, they are going to go do their investigation and unravel what happened to the painting. But I started thinking to myself that maybe that's not the case at all. Imagine that Bunny was attacked in her apartment and she simply went next door to Selena Gomez's apartment to, uh, you know, seek help. She basically just, you know, uh, and like to talk to her and give her a clue or give her some information so that she can investigate. But if that's the case, why wouldn't Bunny just say the name of the attacker? Well, she said 14 Savage. Yeah, that could be a clue. That could be a trick, too. Like we could say it's 14. It could be an apartment number. See, they should be all looking. At the I 14s. was assuming that it was the 14th floor is what right. I've been assuming based on nothing. Just, you know. Right. That's my guess. Yeah, they're being a little dense and not immediately investigating anything to do with 14. It could be apartment number 14, maybe on the same floor. Maybe it was someone right there or at the 14th floor, like you said or something else, but they should be. They yeah, should be I mean, New York the City apartments are generally, but not always, the 14th floor and then 14A, B, C, D, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but not always, but that's usually the convention for the New York City apartments. So that's why I've been assuming 14th floor. And then Savage, I mean, it could be some kind of reference to Charles himself, right? Charles Hayden Savage. Right. Yeah, so, or yeah. we could be back at the, the painting. Father. Yeah. yeah, the yeah. painting is called Savage, right? It right. could also just be like savage, like, oh, you know, like she's just saying this attack was savage. But, um, you know, so there's an option where they can opt out that way. But it still feels feels sketchy. I mean, you know, if we take this as a serious mystery that you know, she wouldn't have given him a more direct answer, you know, like like just grabbed her by the neck and been like, it's about the painting. Mm, that's always the case. If Woody had just called the police, check, check my phone, the, the yeah. person who called me this afternoon, that's the person, you know, like something. Not just 14 Savage. Mm. What's that rapper 21 Savage? Maybe it's uh, maybe it's a reference. Oh, to you're him. asking the wrong person, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's where we leave it there. Uh, and like, as I mentioned, this is a relatively uh, short conversation just to catch up on this current episode. And I think in general, we will just be focusing on covering Better Call Saul. And uh, Better Call Saul ends before the final two episodes of Only Murders in a Building. So, the plan right now would be to just cover Better Call Saul and then come back to the show when it's ready to wrap up. And uh, yeah, uh, so far I'm entertained by this. Uh, once again, I, you know, I'm not that vested in the mystery. I, I am more interested, like you mentioned, you know, having Bunny kind of humanized to some extent and thinking about her kind of lonely and sad life here in the city. That's what's more rich in the episode. And there might be more to it. There might be other clues I'm missing. I do have a quick question for you that I forgot to mention earlier. What do you think about her giving all that money to? Yeah, I was going to mention that too. Sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, I mean, I was pretty much just wanted to raise it, giving all the money to her waiter for that very reason that it made it feel a little final, but it does look honestly like she wasn't suicidal or thinking something bad was going to happen. She really just seemed like she was probably just going to move to Florida and then Mm -hmm. kind of changed her mind and decided to stay. Mm -hmm. But it was weird for her to just be walking around handing out huge amounts of money to people. So, yeah, also weird that a guy of that age and demographic, like, just seemed a little bit old to be getting his DJ business <laughs> off the ground. But, DJ you know, yeah, I don't want. Well, you know what? Stuff. If you're a DJ, <laughs> it's, it takes a long time sometimes to get that off the ground. So. <laughs> Maybe, but he seemed to be just starting out. He doesn't have the equipment. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Good point. To so start DJ at forty. I mean, whatever. Never too late for a second act, right? But sure, um, sure. <laughs> yeah, it did uh, have that idea that you hear about like people who are about to end their own lives, yeah, start giving yeah. their stuff away. But there was nothing else to support that kind of concept, right? So exactly. Yeah. If she was um, and like, she's, yeah. yeah, she's like looking at the Florida pamphlet, yes, yes, right? Yes. While mm-hmm. this is happening, basically. Yep. So on the one hand, like, yes, I'm assuming those are linked. On the other hand, why show us that? Yes. Right. There's got to be something to it. Otherwise, why show us that? Right. Exactly. I feel the same way. But I also feel the same way with all those caveats you mentioned, because we've seen that in movies before, right, where someone is saying, like, I'm retiring and moving off to blah, blah, blah. And then we see them alone and we see that they're not doing any of the things they're telling everybody they're doing. And you're like, oh, like they know they're sick or they know something you know, Mm -hmm. that's going to drop. But like you said, every time we see her, she's actually looking at the catalog. She's, you know, contemplating like, man, I don't know if I like (laughs) <laughs> you know, the heat of Florida. I just realized I don't mm-hmm. like hot uh, climates. And then she's also backing away when she has that board meeting of being, uh, you know, actually stepping down. 
so none of that seems to you know indicate that she actually is making that turn but like you mentioned why show us that in the first place right that that was you know very much they made a big point of that that she's handing Absolutely. out this money so also thought it was interesting that where she sat in the diner <laughs> under all those pictures of all those other old people, they don't look like they're old celebrities. Is that just like where old people sit? It's like, where do you go? <laughs> you sit here where all the old people sit. <laughs> they had to have been celebrities. That's what New York City places do, right? Like even at the dry cleaner, you find the pictures. I think that was a bit in Seinfeld. Uh, but they look like candids. Know. They do not look like uh, they don't. I didn't it. get a close <laughs> yeah. look at the pictures. Yeah. So, okay, maybe, maybe. Also, I mean, was it just to fill out the story that we met Martin Short's son again, or was yes. there something about that? That's actually something I think is a good point you bring up. I was wondering how she's hearing these other scenes from the outside and thinking, are these conversations clues in some way? But not that I could see, and maybe, maybe they're playing some long game that I can't see yet, but nothing's, everything seemed pretty mundane. I did mm-hmm. like the fact that when she talked about the uh, the son breaking the glass when he was ten years old, and he goes, "How how did she know about the broken glass?" And uh, yes. Martin Short's just says, "I think she's a she's like she's an actual witch." So, and they just try to run, a, run out of the diner. Yeah, it was a funny moment, and it really resonated for me in that I hear very few complaints about my kid. He knows how to be well behaved when he's not home. But then all hell breaks loose at home. But um, the few times that I have received a complaint about my child from a stranger, it is always invariably a woman of Bunny's demographic. (laughs) Invariably. So it rang true to me that she not only knew that that happened, but is continuing to hold a grudge and cannot get past it. Forever. Yes. All right. Did you have any recommendations? Anything you saw <clears throat> during the uh, break at all? Oh, do you know what we watched actually a few weeks ago? Um, that was, it actually was good. I would recommend it, but only to certain people. Um, it's a movie on Netflix called Hustle with Adam Sandler. Oh yeah. I've been wanting to see that. It's definitely on the queue, but I haven't ca- caught up on it yet. Yeah. It was really good, but you must be a basketball fan. It, interesting how basketball I hear there's is a tons. in this conversation. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I do not think it would be nearly as enjoyable if you don't like basketball and like the NBA. I've heard it's tons of uh, cameos, right? Just the tons yeah. of um, yeah. But a really enjoyable story. Did I recommend for you guys the uh, you should watch this with Joel, the Lakers show on HBO, Winning Time? Um, I'm not sure, honestly. It came out in that glut of shows like in April, whenever that was. And uh, it played maybe started even earlier. Maybe started started in March. It might have started while we were covering Severance, and then I caught up with it when it wrapped up in April or May, whenever it ended. But uh, yeah, it's I'd actually recommend it. It's not only really interesting to kind of see this moment in time where like the NBA was kind of very staid, you know, kind of just post up the, to the big man and, and, you know, kind of the Will Chamberlain, a school of basketball. But you kind of see that kind of fast break, uh, Magic Johnson, um, you know, a uh, point guard type basketball that became the, the like for the next decade or two, the and maybe up to, to today actually the kind of uh, basketball we see now. So it's interesting to kind of see that pivot in the show, or I should say, uh, you know, the show representing that, and just other things, just like you know this intersection of, for example, you see like Kobe Bryant <laughs> as a baby, like going, you know, it be, you know being at a Lakers game, and Paul Abdul uh, being their uh, first uh, choreographer. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's just interesting how this interaction of. Or, or intersection of sports and Los Angeles culture becomes more like entertainment yes, for exactly. everyone than exactly. it had been like about the sport. Right. Exactly. And it really does a really good job of in its own way. You know, th- this is literally it's from Adam McKay, who can annoy me a lot of times with his directorial style. He only directs the pilot. So some episodes are much stronger than others, depending on who's directing. But it has that kind of style where like literally John C. Riley, who's great in the movie, in the show, by the way, like will turn to the camera <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, talk um, uh, to the to the viewer themselves and give you like a little history lesson like he kind of did with the big short and some of these other things. But I actually found it really entertaining, you know, at living through that period of time. I am enough of a NBA fan where I could appreciate it. But it's not too in the weeds where, you know, I need to be like a, an expert at the, that historical mm-hmm, moment mm-hmm. to follow it along. And I thought they did a good job of balancing those two things out. And uh, yeah, and I think especially if you grew grew up through that period of time, it's a lot of fun to watch. I think basketball is just a fun sport. Generally, it's one of the few sports I've ever been able to get into because it is, you know, it's quick. 
The games are a reasonable length of time. (laughs) They do have like those players that become like personalities. And, you know, I have a lot of other theories about like how well you can see the players' faces and how that gets you more attached Mm -hmm. to them that I won't go down that rabbit hole. (laughs) um, I think there's a lot of reasons that basketball is very easy to watch, even when you're not um, a hardcore sports person, which I definitely am not. Yeah, and that is, to be honest, that's also what the show does a really good job of. There's a lot of crazy things that I actually had to like Google afterwards to be like, did this actually happen? Did this coach actually get like killed by the mobster and stuff like like these crazy things that actually did happen? I'm like, wow, that happened. Holy cow. And pretty much all the most outlandish things in the uh, show turned out to be true facts. But the coach whose name I can't remember right now, but their original coach before Riley comes on that uh, really taught them how to play this kind of basketball. He's like a very intellectual coach. He'd never been a head coach and no one has faith in him. And he's making them run all these crazy drills and he has to just have them keep moving the ball all the time. It's not the way they play basketball. And it's like a total mess. Nobody knows how to play this. And then magic's like the magic in the soup where he can like see the whole field at the same time. He's throwing the ball. He's feeding people at just the right moment. There's an episode, I think it's episode five, where they're at a training camp and all of a sudden, like, they understand this way of playing basketball and Mm -hmm. it literally is so exciting to just see it clicking. And these guys, actors, some of these guys, I looked them up on IMDb have very few acting uh, backgrounds. Uh, The guy who plays Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I don't think he's ever acted before, but he's like a a professor somewhere. And, you know, you have to get these like seven feet tall guys who are very convincing and give great performances. The guy who plays Magic Johnson, once again, really young guy who has like no acting background. They have to be able to play basketball and act. And they do a great job when they're on the field. Once again, I'm sure if you're an expert at basketball, you will critique the way they play. But to me, to like a layman, I'm like, they, they, you know, they're doing a great job of pulling off this playing and acting. <laughs> so it's a really a pretty good, pretty impressive work, I think. Mm-hmm. And it got a second season. So I'm not sure if they're going to. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, it was entertaining. I recommend it. And, you know, something you guys, you and Joel can probably watch together. Not with the kid, not with the kids around, because there's a lot of nudity and sex and stuff. So, <laughs> <But>. <laughs> thanks for that warning. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of now. Now I really digress, but there there are a lot of great basketball movies, right? Yep. I'm yep. thinking about it as we talk. Like, there's the documentary Hoop Dreams, yep. which is amazing. There's He Got Game, the Spike yep. Lee movie about Hoosiers. relationships. Yeah, white man can't jump. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Yeah, like it really is a, a good, there's a lot of fodder in basketball. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there's a, you probably make a whole list of like uh, right? basketball movies. I agree. Oh, and they, we're gonna, I'm going to probably have to cut out most of this anyway, but I do have <laughs> one more recommendation for you. I'm almost certain mm-hmm. I've made this recommendation to you before, but given your interest in like players' rights and also tying back to our Steven Soderbergh conversation with like the Kimmy movie that we covered and mm-hmm. also No False Move mm-hmm. as well. On Netflix, there's a movie called High Flying Bird. Yes, I've heard very good things about it. Because it's a Soderbergh movie, it is a heist. So it's about this basketball agent who's pulling off a heist against the NBA, but he's pulling it off in plain sight. He's basically using social media to manipulate the NBA into giving him what he wants on behalf of the players. Like he's trying to be like, it's like a fantasy, by the way. It's like we can rebuild the NBA if we basically put the screws to the NBA. And it's kind of amazing. I think like Soderbergh intentionally, you know, he's like a progressive. I think he intentionally made this movie for the fact that basically saying like, hey, NBA players, you guys can do this. <laughs> you can actually do this. But like, you know, if you try to, you just have to work together. Like, and it literally is like a heist. Like at the end, they do the little thing where they show you snippets of what happened earlier in the movie and you realize how all these dominoes were falling into place. Oh, one more thing to mention. I guess I'll throw this in here. I don't know if you knew about this, but a couple of weeks back, the first episode of Better Call Saul, the end run here, played at Tribeca. Did you hear about this? I did not. And I work in Tribeca. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> they had a screening and apparently like, people could show up. You didn't have to. It wasn't just press or whatever. And people what? have seen it. And the reaction was like pretty crazy. You know, obviously people have to like sign non-disclosures and stuff. But imagine what what leaked out was basically people were just saying, like, in very general terms, you know, the first half was all like set up, set up, set up. And then that payoff at the end. And they're like, oh, is that what the second half is going to be like? And they're like, absolutely not. It is like being in a horror movie. And just when you think things can't ratchet up anymore, (laughs) they keep ratcheting it up and ratcheting it up. If your heart was in your throat at the end of the last episode, it's like your pulse will be racing (laughs) 
<laughs> and you'll be breaking out in sweat at the end of this next episode. So that's oh, what we have wow. to look forward to. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it sounds incredible. Can't wait to see. Yeah. It. Amazing. Cool. All okay. Right. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. 25 pounds? No, no, no. I ordered 200. What is beef? You still got that meat connected? You get $12.50 for that on eBay. Boom. You cut vegetables like a bitch. Not system. System, baby. System. System. This is your brother's house. I was running it fine without you. Why didn't he leave it to you then? Don't wipe your hands on your apron, chef. Jeff. I refer to everybody as chef because it's a sign of respect. You could throw down, huh? So how you gonna pass the family test? Delicious or impressive? Delicious is impressive. Whatever. Yo, family's up. I just never had platanos with like grass on it. <laughs> we want to change this restaurant, right? But we have to change the chemistry. Hey, why are you always like watching me? Cause it's just sort of my job. We're the chili flakes. Cause it organizes. It's more confusing. Right there. Labeled chili flakes. This is a delicate ecosystem, and it's held together by a shared history and love. I've every. I wanted to talk about the bear. So, give me your general impressions of this show. I think I we texted a lot about it, so I think I know a lot of things you're going to say. But I think there's a lot to talk about there. I think it evolves beautifully. Yes. When I first started watching it, I was annoyed yes. by it because. I'm like, this is way more intense than shameless. Everybody's screaming. I don't like anyone. Everyone's angry. Everyone's sad. Everyone's in this. It's a mess. It's dirty. But it was mainly the energy was too much for me. Like, oh, you know, exhausting. This is exhausting. But I do like the main character. What is his name? Why don't I know it? Jeremy Allen White. Jeremy Allen White. Okay. That guy's awesome at being kind of the bad boy, but he's real sensitive. He's got that face. You just like him and you root for him. And just like in Shameless, you really need him. He had the same reaction. Oh, no, you need him. Or I would have like been like, I don't know why you recommended this to me. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I hang in there for him because I like him. And then it gets better and better. And I start liking these people and I start seeing their background and why they act like this. And they're grateful. Everything's coming along. And I love their family times, their family Mm -hmm. meals. By the end of the series, and I saw the whole thing, I like everyone, including the most annoying characters. (laughs) I like them too. So it evolved. Great. Yep. I want to see more. I want there to be a second season. Yep. I want I to see them in a better spot. Yep. I agree with all that. I had the same experience you had where similar, almost identical to what you're describing. And I think I said this to you when I first recommended it to you on the previous episode, that this is very smart that they released this show to binge. Because if I had to go week to week on this, which is what happened to me with Shameless, I agree that this is way more heightened than Shameless is. But at the same time, it's just a very short time commitment. So I was willing to put it through it. If they were saying tune in next week, I would not have kept tuning in. I would have quit at some point. Right. But I think you're absolutely right that it's the right way to binge it. The right way to consume it is to binge it for all the reasons you said. And the main reason is that very intelligently, this show is constructed where everybody is a mess. Everybody is broken. Uh, Everybody's a cliche really at the beginning of the show, but it's all intentional because over the course of the show, they're going to, you know, do a very stereotypical thing you see, by the way, this is not, it's not really breaking a mold, to be honest with you. I described it to you as a workplace, you know, dramedy type thing. And that's really what it is, right? It's about these people who have to work together and, you know, they hate each other. They love each other. They rely on each other. And it becomes like a family of, practicality and of choice at some point, right? Because he could just fire all these people and get elite chefs in there, but he won't because he has this commitment to the legacy of the place, right? All of those things tie in and it's all cliche, but it's perfectly executed by the end. I think like, it's like when it comes together at the end and that beautiful Radiohead song is playing, one of my favorite Radiohead songs, it's just like all just been leading to that point. And like you said, it's like a perfect ending to the series. Once again, not to spoil, but you know, they are turning over a new leaf at the end. 
And you're like, wow, this is what this, all this torture was for this payoff at the end, right? I mean, in the show and in the, you know, to these people specifically in their story as well. So yeah, I liked it <laughs> when it comes down to it. Me too. A couple of things I thought were interesting. One is that, and you get a feel for this, that it's interesting that there's a lot of like elite athletes that eventually become chefs, people who, uh, and it's not surprising when you see this because this is like an endurance test. Like you have to, first of all, what do athletes have to do? They have to repeat the same thing over and over and over again. You have to shoot tens of thousands of baskets to get good at shooting baskets. You got to swing the bat tens of thousands of times. You got to throw the football hundreds of thousands of times to become an elite uh, performer. And these guys have to execute over and over and over again for hours and hours and hours. And then they sleep and they get up and they start over again. So it's very much like training for a sport. And it's also that idea of like, you know, the whole point is to get so good at something that you're like in a flow state. You're just like kind of like, you know, working subliminally. And uh, it's the same thing with being like an elite chef, right? And that's what they're discovering in, in the course of this show. So that's the one thing I found interesting. The second thing I found interesting is that I felt like the whole show is also a metaphor for making a movie or making a TV show, right? You got all these different people. People have different skill sets. Some people are new. Some people have been around for a while. And, uh, you know, it's just like a big mess. You know, no one ever hits their lines and the actor gets sick and can't make the role and blah, 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 blah. And the weather changes and you have to rewrite a scene. And then in the end, you deliver this thing and nobody knows how absolutely crazy it was to put it together. It's just perfectly plated at the end, right? That's probably why, you know, filmmakers, there's this direct correlation between filmmakers and uh, our fascination by filmmakers and chefs because they're in a way doing the same thing, right? Chefs require much cheaper <laughs> materials to, to make their plates than a, than a filmmaker does, which probably costs tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars just to make something pretty basic. But it's similar in the fact that it takes a lot of people working all together to execute something uh, successfully. Right? But chefs are also artists. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They have to be creative in ways that a painter would be creative. Right. Well, I think that's why filmmaking specifically, I think filmmaking is kind of like the most elite art form because, you know, you can paint by yourself. You can write by yourself. There's all these different creative activities you can do completely alone. But to make a film, you have to envision something. Then you have to like break it down into these different components. Then you have to like turn it into a process. Then all these different people have to do all those little processes. And then at the end, you have to make the thing that was in your head at the beginning. And that's what chefs do, right? They imagine a dish and then they have to like you know, get all this logistical nightmare in place and then be able to like not make it once, but make it dozens and dozens and dozens of times exactly the same way. <laughs> has to turn it, you have to turn something from an idea into a product that you can you know, execute perfectly. And that is really complicated, right? And, and you see some of that here in this show. That's why when he left what he was doing, where he could have been highly, highly successful and actually right. was in his field at the moment, yep. he had won those awards. He comes back to run his brother's restaurant because his brother has committed suicide. Right. So there's a dark undertone to this oh, yeah. whole thing. So let's get let's get into the spoilers now because I don't know if that's really a spoiler. I don't know if they reveal that in the trailer or not. But it was can, in the trailer. Yeah, we can now pivot into spoilers. And this show honestly is not a show that is reliant on spoilers. It's not like oh my god, he was dead the whole time. <laughs> well, I mean, someone was dead the whole time, but not, not the protagonist. It's not that kind of twist or whatever. But there are some things to be spoiled. So the the first one, of course, is that. His brother committed suicide and was an addict. I don't know if that's really a spoiler or not, but it definitely is made clear, obviously, maybe halfway through the show that they reveal this whole suicide thing, which, like you said, adds a very dark undercurrent to like what, what drove him to suicide. Everybody thought he was this jovial guy. Everybody loved him. And then he goes and does this really dark thing. And to that point, what did you think about the casting of um, John Barenthal as his brother? He, that guy is good in every role that he plays because every role that I've ever seen him in, he's kind of the wise ass, yeah. cocky, you know, fakely confident, boisterous guy. He did a great job being that guy again. They did a great job of casting him because you need someone who's really going to make an impression with like basically one scene, right? That's all he gets. We have to get a feel for this character that everybody loved. And what was at the heart of him in a very short period of time. And also a great time to cast him because he just was like incredible, <laughs> absolutely incredible in uh, We Own the City. And, and now we see him in this like a few weeks later. 
They did great. All the casting's good. The, the yep. annoying cousin yep. was oh the God. most yes. annoying person I've ever met. <laughs> On earth, yes. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't understand like why he would not fire him. And I also, at one point, was so annoyed by him that I was thinking, I'm just never going to watch this show again just because you cast that jerk. How do you like that? How do you like that? That's how annoyed I was at this guy. You know what's interesting about him, though? I would say, and, and I don't know if you had the same uh, experience that I had with it, is that I found him so absolutely incredibly irritating, like so irritating. And it's funny too, because I hear people say like, oh my God, I love him. Like he's a great character. I'm like, I don't know, maybe you have cousins or something that remind you of that person. Because for me, just like you, that person annoys the crap out of me. However, it didn't turn me off from the show because that is such a specific type of person. I have worked with that person. I've gone to school with exactly that type of person. I know exactly who that person is. So I didn't have that issue because I didn't feel like it was just this irritating contrivance. I'm like, oh my God, I know exactly who this person is. There's just people that you have in your life. They have to make everything into a drama. Everything is like a test for your acceptance of them. Everything has to be so hard all the time. And everybody just kind of like pities them and they feel it. They feel that you're just barely tolerating them. And that just eggs them on even more. It's like they want to push you away, right? So that was, <laughs> I just thought it was very well realized because I, like I said, I know people like that and uh, that's exactly what they're like. <laughs> so I had that, uh, they had that recognition in the character. So it didn't irritate me as much as maybe you, but I think you recognize that too. I think it just still bothered the hell out of you, right? I don't like spending my precious <laughs> small amount of time that I have left on earth with people that I don't like. <laughs> so I was watching this and I'm like, I don't want to spend time watching you. I don't like you. <laughs> yeah, I really didn't like him. But the show is so good that by the end, yeah. I did like him. I didn't just understand him and, and give him more sympathy. I do like him. Not enough to like, you know, hang out with him every day or anything, but I like him. Yeah, I was, I was kind of rooting for him at the end of the show, definitely. And that was a big change, big pivot for me, for sure. I think it's great. I think I, I'm very curious to see what happens now. By the way, just another just great TV director I have to call out here is Hiro Murai. I brought him up previously. This guy, he had two shows on at the exact same time. He was the main director of Barry season two the main director of Atlanta season two, when those two shows were running literally at the same time. He has also directed, for example, uh, Station Eleven earlier this year on HBO Max, which was very good, the Epidemic TV series. And he did not direct any of these episodes, but he is the executive producer of this show. His ability taking these stories that could be like sitcoms on paper and turning those stories into something very different. Anyway, I, I big fan of his. I, I always Anything he's involved with, I'm definitely going to check out for sure. Okay, so one actual spoiler, spoiler that we have here. Uh, and, you know, so anybody who's listening this far, this is a real spoiler because it's the very, very end of the show. And I have to ask you a question about this because I don't understand how this works <laughs> here at the end of the show. So they go to make the tomato sauce, which of course was the note he left behind. Two lines that, you know, make everybody cry. I didn't cry, but, you know, I, that was definitely the intention. The, uh, he goes to make the sauce finally because everyone, he doesn't want to make this sauce. He refuses to make it. Why does he keep buying those eight ounce cans of tomatoes? Why doesn't he just buy the 20 ounce cans? They're cheaper. And he goes and to make the sauce finally, and there's a wad of cash in there. And there is hundreds of thousands of dollars in those containers. And of course he immediately gets that. And he puts up the note and says, it's going to be the bear. There you go. That's where the title of the show comes from. So this whole thing was a setup for the bear, which is going to be the restaurant next year, I assume. This is the foundational story for that next season of the show and whatever goes beyond there. So my question is, so he was taking this money. He borrowed $300,000 from Oliver Platt's character, Cicero, I believe his name is. And he put it into these tomato cans so that someone would find them sometime in the future to do what? I mean, if they suddenly are cash rich, isn't Cicero just going to want their money? <laughs> I don't understand how this works out is my point. Do you have a theory as what what the plan is? What I'm about to say would only work if the boisterous brother who committed suicide is as deep as my analogy at this point. What if the brother knew he wasn't doing well? He he's an addict. Mm -hmm. He's going to kill himself. He just yep. has to. Right. Um, 
that's going to cause the other brother to come and try to save his restaurant. That right. is right now such a catastrophe right. that even all the money in the world could, in his state of mind, could he fix it? He right. just can't fix it. He has to die. He knows his brother's going to come back. And he knows that at some point he's going to open the tomato sauce cans because they have this whole thing with spaghetti like going on. And I don't know if he realized that it was going to be as long as it took for him to get the the letter that he left there. It must have fallen behind something. Yeah, it did fall behind there. So he must have thought he would have found it beforehand. When he says, you know, I love you, let it RIP, does he mean let the restaurant rest in peace so he could start something new? Well, he said, let it rip. That was the, his tagline, right? He used to always say, let it rip. That was what he used to always say. But you're he does, right. But he it, says, it also right. could be mm-hmm. RIP. Right. Like let it, like let the restaurant die, restaurant start over. Restaurant. Right. Do something for you. Make it a success. Yeah. Here's a bunch of money. Like, because he's specifically telling him to make spaghetti. Right. That would have, he, and then he did. He goes and he opens a spaghetti can. Right. So is his brother that deep? Because well, I mean, that would, that's the closest I could come to sense of this. Well, that's what doesn't make sense to me either. I, I mean, it, like you said, he's playing like four dimensional chess. <laughs> <laughs> for this to work out <laughs> and um you're uh, you're absolutely right like it's like you know it would have to be like absolutely incredible insight into everybody in the show as if he like predicted the future <laughs> and like he does that wink at the end because he like he knew everything that was going to happen and it, because of all the things you just said but i still have this you know let me just start with the practical part you know if they suddenly have hundreds of thousands of dollars they would know like they're shutting down the store to remodel the place and they're going to probably have to spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get this thing up and running operationally. And Cicero is just going to be okay with that because the brother died. I mean, he's making them work off the money right now. I don't think he's just going to forgive it if they suddenly are flush with cash. That's the first part. I'm pretty sure they have enough to pay off the loan and still upgrade the restaurant. That was my assumption. Look at all this money. Yeah. There was an entire wall. Because think about that. He the business was struggling. He must have come into the money at the end. He could have he been borrowed, betting. He borrowed $300,000. So, and then put that specific amount of money in the tomato cans. Exactly. That he so borrowed. That point, yeah. So the point is like, if he borrowed that money, you know, even if it's more, let's say he was also, you know, shuffling aside, but theoretically this restaurant making sandwiches is never going to be making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Right. It's just like kind of, you know, making enough for everybody to live off of, but think about it. His sister sugar is saying that she's going to lose her house because she is now the owner of the place and he hasn't paid taxes for years. So this place was not doing well. He would have been paying his taxes. So he wouldn't screw them all over with this situation. So I still like, once again, just from a practical standpoint, I don't know how this works because I assume the vast majority of that money that's there was borrowed from Cicero and what Cicero is just going to be okay with it. I don't get that. Right. But Unless the other he part- wanted to end his life. And wanted to bring his brother back to this yes. place that he yes, felt yes. like he belonged in. Yes, yes. So yeah, that's the part he would I agree have with. To that's the that's the have 4D, left him money. That's the four D chess part of it that I think uh, makes sense. He's going to bring his brother back. His brother's going to have to like deal this. There's going to be this whole trial by fire. His brother's going to have to learn to work with the people who are there, to work with nothing, to make all these you know, different concessions, right? He's gonna have to struggle through that. And then he's going to get the recipe for the tomato sauce and his brother who fucking hates making tomato sauce will refuses to make pasta, right? He knows that eventually his brother being stubborn will have to wait and wait and wait. And finally, when he's totally broken down, is going to make the tomato sauce and find the money. Because to your point, if he's just going to be like, I'm going to kill myself and leave my brother half a million dollars to start something new, put it in the bank account. <laughs> like, why hide the tomato sauce, right? That's where the part is like this. It's like a test for him that, you know, he has to make the tomato sauce. He's got to give in and make the sauce to get the money, to get the thing he needs. And that's where it becomes like, you know, incredible. Like this guy has amazing insight into everybody's in their inner you know, lives to be able he to- He must though. He even knew <laughs> yes. that he was going to not want to make the tomato sauce even more because yeah. he's spending all this extra money 
on small cans of tomato sauce. Exactly. That's what I point. Exactly. He's furious. He had to he had to get someone to can the tomatoes to put the money in there. Like, think about the complexity of this. <laughs> it, it is very, very complicated. That's His, why I'm saying you can't just be like, oh, well, you know, he wanted to leave the money. It's like, no, no, no. This is crazy. The, this, the method of getting the money to him is bananas. <laughs> yeah. And what if he was so mad at the fact that he bought these little cans that he was like, like he never used them. What if he just or threw, he just out? threw them out? he just threw them out. Exactly. Throwing out these cans of yes. tomatoes. Why do you, I'm never making tomato sauce What is again. up with this guy? Yeah. yeah. That so would have been just bad. Think about, just think about what the, uh, <laughs> I mean, so think about that. Think about all those things he just said. So that's all had to be <laughs> calculated into his, you know, amazing, amazing uh, thought processes. Yeah. Deep. Yeah. Very much so. After seeing this show, it made me think about Kitchen Confidential, Anthony Bourdain's book, which of course is all about these people who are, in his particular case, when he wrote that book, not, I mean, he was like a very low level chef at the time. And he was working at a very fancy restaurant, but he had started just washing dishes. That's where he started. So he started with nothing. And of course, that documentary, Roadrunner, that came out last year, which I knew was around. <laughs> I'd never gotten around to seeing it. And this is how things are, right? I definitely wanted to see it last year. I missed it last year when it was in theaters. So then now, you know, I, it just was off my radar. But, you know, as happenstance would have it, The Bear, I'm watching The Bear. And at the same time, it pops up on HBO Max. And there you go. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do like a double feature. As soon as I finish this, I'm going to watch Roadrunner. And I loved it. I thought the the, the documentary was terrific. It wasn't depressing. I, I found it to be, I mean, the ending's depressing. I don't know if you made it all the way to the end yet. But of course, when they're actually with him, you know, the day he kills himself, you know, there's footage of it. Not of him oh, dying. Oh, no, don't tell oh, no, me no, no, anything. No, no, no. no, no. I'm <laughs> only halfway through. No, no, no. I, I, I want to be clear about that. There's no footage of him dying. He was making the show at that time. So you see footage of him with Eric Robert and stuff like the day this happened, right? So it's crazy to see, to be that close to him hours before he does this thing, right? So all of that is sad. But up until then, I mean, in a way, it's so life affirming that he like found this calling late in his life. But I want to give you a piece of information because I want to get your read on him so far. I'm going to give you a piece of information that they do not put in a documentary. And I think they really should put it in there because you texted me. You felt like he was probably just overwhelmed by his fame because he was really an introvert. And I'm not sure that was his personality because something they do not mention in the documentary, and I think they should have, Kitchen Confidential was his first bestseller, obviously, went all the way to number one, sold millions of copies, a huge success. And it really became or it started this food culture in America in that particular time, right? Late 90s, early 2000s. It really started there to go completely mainstream. And then, you know, now we have reality shows with people cooking and we have all these restaurateurs or celebrities, it, you know, it all came later on. And he was a big part of that. Before then, in the 90s, he had written two mystery novels and he had paid for his own book tours and the books were total flops. No one showed up at his book signings and he tried this multiple times and it didn't take off. So he really, really did want to achieve some kind of fame and notoriety. It just happened that this nonfiction book is what finally put him over the top. But I do think that that is something that is an extra shading to his personality that they don't get into in the, the show, because I think he's someone who was a fantasist. He loved to write a romantic version of his own life. And you see that on the show itself, right? These, you know, his narrations he writes are very much romanticizing life and his life specifically. But I think he always kind of saw himself as the star of a big movie. And so I'm not sure he was really this introvert that you, that you describe. But what if you only can tolerate being social for a certain amount of time and then you have to go back into your shell to recuperate right. from all this socializing so you can then go back out into the world? I'm like that. So yeah. I completely get it. I can right. be really, really, really social, but then like I don't want to see anybody for like three days. <laughs> well, maybe you didn't and get then this I'm good to go. Right. But I'm he not did. saying he, he, he was like that, but but he was no, doing because that. when he went to, I think it was Tokyo or where did he go on his first trip after those people wanted to do the Bourdain show, he barely spoke to them. Right. They were about to cancel the show. Well, that was just because, I mean, he didn't understand. I mean, that, that he was making a new, creating a new show at the time, right? Like this was, he didn't even know what he was doing. he huh? have... Something though, I mean, does he have bipolar disorder? Does he have 
what well, he's a heroin anything. addict. He was a heroin well, addict, right? that's, I mean, I, I, I have to find out more about his background. Yeah. I think I, I'm going to start researching that, see if I yeah. could find anything because it could be that it's just, you think you want something, but then it's too much and it's impossible I, to get out of the spotlight yeah. at some point. I would recommend one of the places where I get most of my psychoanalyzing of him. And this is when he was still alive was in watching his show. And I would recommend check out the episode he did in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where he talks about, he spent a summer there when he was like at the peak of his heroin addiction. And he talks about how he came from this like middle-class family and his parents were like nothing but supportive for him and just tried to help him out. And he had like everything you would want in a suburban upbringing and how he just totally rejected it. He was really into punk rock music. This is in the early seventies. So he was right there when punk rock uh, started. And you hear, you see it in the documentary, by the way, a lot of the punk rock music they use in the background, like some of his favorite songs. And um, so he talks about that. He talks about his addiction. He talks about, you know, how he was always feeling like there was some other life for him out there that he was like missing out on and kind of led him to become an addict, like to almost to create a, uh, a, a story for himself. And he talks about it, right? He talks about how his biggest literary uh, icons were all like addicts. Like, you know, he was like William Burroughs, which was like a, a heroin addict and uh, all these, you know, filmmakers and uh, writers in the sixties and seventies who were countercultural and addicts, most of them. And it's almost like he created this lifestyle for himself because he thought it would uh, like a lot of kids, by the way, in, at that time, you know, you kind of think you need to suffer for your art. So he had to kind of invent a suffering lifestyle. <laughs> and uh, but I think that that is part of his addiction is that he needed to create that story for himself. So maybe I'm way over psychoanalyzing him. But I do think that, you know, especially later in the uh, show, people say some of these same things. He says some of these things in his interviews. So I'd be curious to, to get your read on it when you finish uh, watching the documentary. But I think the documentary just barely touches on it. I think of some of those most famous episodes where he kind of gets into his own biography. And I think that was part of his downfall in a way, you know, is this kind of need to create a fantastical life instead of accepting the one he had. It's people are so fascinated by these kinds of situations yeah. because he had everything. Yes. It's like the best job in the world. This yeah. is what people think that they right. want. And then he ends it all. But if your brain is like attacking itself, right? How oh, yeah. depression is a different thing. Feel yeah. any of this. Yeah. You can't feel this. Even if you're aware of it on the outside, like you still just feel bad. Yeah. It does fascinate me too. This is another thing I texted you about, but I do find it really fascinating to see how there's such a correlation between people who are very famous and very successful and suicide or drug overdose, which oftentimes I feel like drug overdoses like Prince and Tom Petty dying so close together. It's like they both died of heroin overdoses or opioid overdoses, different versions of opioids. But uh, I don't think they were intentional. But at the same time, this kind of neglect of yourself is, I think, almost an outcome of some of the same underlying uh, sickness. And it's so strange how it correlates to fame. So you think about how <laughs> fame is such a toxic substance in a way. And I think about one scenario, you have Kurt Cobain, right? And Kurt Cobain is somebody who is very uh, sensitive and like not someone who was built to be famous. And then he couldn't deal with the stress of it, with his expectations that he's going to have this other massive record that he's going to be, you know, he, he gets all this fame and all this success. And then it's like this giant thing that he was never built to carry. And it very, very well probably led to, at least in part, to his suicide, right? That's one scenario. Then you have someone like... Um, Whitney Houston, right? Where Whitney Houston was like, until I'm like the most famous person in the world, I will not stop. I will not stop. She has this inferiority complex or something. And she strives and strives and strives. And then she becomes the most famous woman in the world, right? She's a movie star and selling 40 million albums. And like, no one is more famous than she is. But of course, you can't stay that famous. You come off the other side of that. And when she was just like one of the most famous people in the world, that wasn't good enough. <laughs> it's time to cut it off, right? Michael Jackson, another example of this. So it's very, and then another scenario is look at like Amy Winehouse, right? Someone who's so talented, who probably could probably survive fame in a way because she kind of never took it too seriously. But at the same time, she's a total addict. And all of a sudden, all that success gives her too many opportunities <laughs> to screw things up. And, you know, she ends up self-destroying, you know, destroying herself. So it's this weird thing that, 
it's almost like fame, whether you're ready for it or not, it's like going to kill you. It's like the worst thing that could happen to somebody, really. And I think it killed that, him too. That over the top kind of fame, yeah, it seems to not go well for people. Look at Elvis. Yeah. You have to be um, like I'm, not famous, like you said, not famous in front of the camera, for example, overexposure. And like that is the thing that gets completely toxic. Being like powerful, being rich doesn't necessarily destroy you, but being famous <laughs> will destroy you, basically. You'll never feel alone. People have to be alone. Right. Some people can't be alone, though. That's the other thing, right? Like a Whitney Houston, you know, couldn't survive without a giant entourage around her. But that's so it's, it's, something's not natural about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The whole concept is not as intolerable as it sounds because people have such short memory spans and such right. short attention spans that you could be really famous and then nobody's going to care about you. Oh, yeah. You know, shortly thereafter, a few years later, people can't quite remember your name. Right. But you have but to be- in the moment, it just yeah. feel I'm sure. I, I mean, I'm not famous, but <laughs> in a moment, it. I get uncomfortable Wait when till I you get see the ratings on this podcast. Too much attention. <laughs> really? <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> the whole 300 but, people know us. <laughs> my goodness. I'm starting to sweat. <laughs> but for real, it's just there there has to be something that that is too famous. Okay, so I let you go. Thanks for the conversation. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.